0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
2: There are currently 160 cases per million people in the U.S. every day on a rolling seven-day average, 160. And of course, we know the true number is much higher than that. These are confirmed cases around testing. There are nine in the EU, nine, nine. Yep. (laughs)
3: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Ezra Klein. Um, we originally started doing these these podcasts. Well, they were going to be election podcasts, and then they were going to be coronavirus podcasts, and we moved on. But the pandemic is is back in the United States in a in a big way. And Ezra was we pointing out to me offline, it's um, things are kind of different internationally. Wouldn't you say?
2: It is shocking. Sometimes when we do the coronavirus podcast, I feel like I drop into this weird vocal register where I don't feel like I have the range to describe how bad what I'm describing is. But I want to try here because I think it's really important that people don't feel like what is happening here is simply a natural disaster and it is understood the size of the policy failure we're living through and how many people will suffer and die because of it. So, I think the simplest way to do a comparison here is to look at the European Union, because the European Union is similar to our size, similar to our level of wealth, um, has uh, governing institutions, which while not the same as ours, are you know comparable in many ways. It experienced the virus, if anything, a little bit earlier than we did. The outbreaks in, say, Italy came first. So they've been dealing with this longer. They started dealing with actually less information than we had. They're, they're, they're good reasons to look at them as comparable. If you go to our world in data and you look at a seven-day rolling average of cases per million in the US and in the EU, I don't know how to describe how wild that chart is. So there are currently 160 cases per million people in the US every day on a rolling seven-day average, 160. And of course, we know the true number is much higher than that. These are confirmed cases around testing. There are nine in the EU. Nine. Nine. Yep. Nine. And the EU has more people. Not, like nine. The EU yep. is a couple. Arizona alone is seeing more cases per day than the EU. There, this is not, as far as we can tell, a testing issue. If you look at like uh, rates of um, testing positivity, the things you would look at to see if you're seeing something like that, that is not what we are seeing. So then I want to take this one step further. At Stat News, which they've been doing great coverage throughout this entire crisis, so if you're not following them, you should be, Stat News. Isaac Sabinius and James Sabinius, who are both at Harvard, did a piece looking at trying to answer the question, how many of the deaths that we have seen in the US reflect at least potentially bad policy? How many of them seem, given the experiences of other places... Preventable, and the places they choose to compare us to are Germany, South Korea, Australia, and Singapore. And that they they, they choose those places on a variety of reasons: when the virus hit, um, the amount of the population that lives in sort of urbanized areas, etc. They calculate that somewhere between seventy percent to ninety nine percent of the U.S. fatalities from COVID nineteen could have been averted. Seventy to ninety nine percent. So most of them, the vast majority of them. And just to go back to that EU-US chart for one more second, if you look at it, what is also just truly striking about it is its shape. In the EU, this plateaued some time ago, and it has gotten lower and it has stayed stable. And in the US, we are just going up. So it's all very disturbing. But what we are living through here is a failure, not an inevitability.
3: And in particular, I mean, on, on that shape point, right? It's, 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 the most weeds thing ever is always talking about what charts look like. Uh, but it it looks superficially like a, like a two-wave dynamic, right? We're like, we went up, and then we went down, and then we went up again. But when you look at it geographically, it's like what we had was a big outbreak in the tri-state area, then outbreaks that were not as bad, but substantial in Michigan, Louisiana, and Massachusetts. And then we had very few cases elsewhere in the country. And then those bad outbreaks were brought under control. And in the case of the tri-state area outbreak, not brought under control that quickly and not managed that well while it was going on. And the the death toll was incredible, but the scope of it was limited, just as Europe had very bad outbreaks in Italy, France, and Spain, but not elsewhere on, on continental Europe. But then the difference is that after the Italy, France, Spain outbreaks were contained, that was it right, that the the countries that weren't hit initially started taking precautionary measures, and then they kept doing it so that as things were brought under control in the places where it was worse, the overall situation got better. America, I mean, we did a podcast about this, a, a quite bleak one, but America, without really having gotten things under control, just looking at the fact that it was getting better in New York and New Jersey, just kind of took the lid off in the rest of the country with no It wasn't like, okay, the time had been used to put some complicated test and trace system into place. They weren't even following the Trump administration gating criteria. They certainly didn't do Paul Romer's 20 million tests a day. They just looked around. They said, well it seems like this has gotten under control in the place where it's really bad. So we'll just hope for the best. And then for a couple of weeks, it, it seemed like hoping for the best was sort of working. And then for a couple of weeks after that, case numbers started going up, but death numbers weren't really going up. So they kind of just kept hoping for the best. And then what, I, I don't know how to put it, but like, obviously that was not going to hold up Forever. Like, for really, there's a lot of sort of complicated science around this virus that, you know, uh, qualified people debate or things that people don't quite know. But like, everybody knows that if you don't do something to contain the spread of a respiratory illness, it will keep spreading and it's going to go down in history as like one of those things, you know, where people say, like, we we don't understand, like, what was happening, we don't understand what they were thinking. And to the extent that we can contribute anything as journalists to helping, like, reconstruct for posterity, what was going on, I, I feel like we should, but it's It was baffling to me to watch in real time. The reporting from the White House kept suggesting that Trump administration was worried that keeping businesses closed was hurting the economy and that the damage to the economy was harming his reelection prospects so that shifting back to reopening would improve his political stand. At least that was my... Nobody told me that, but like that was my understanding from from reading the news and from talking to people in Congress who've been involved in in negotiations. And it just never made sense. There was no point in time in April or May where gain re-election by allowing a pandemic to spread uncontrolled sounded to me like a good strategy. Um, And never any sign that the public was all that bothered by restaurants being closed like Democrats were asking to spend more money supporting the economy and the Trump administration said they didn't want to
2: I find still even with all of that the failure here a little bit opaque so the thing that I wonder is clearly the Trump administration has simply failed but is that the only thing that has failed so I'm in California
3: oh yeah what happened in California
2: so California looked really good for a while Um, And we seem to have really good leadership. We locked down early. Gavin Newsom was taking this really seriously. We have a lot of medical resources in this state. Um, The Bay Area was the first sort of area to go into uh, a coordinated lockdown in the country. And it was looking pretty good for like quite some time. And while it is not the case that California currently looks as bad as Florida or Texas or Arizona, it looks bad. It's becoming a hotspot again. Cases were up about 90% over the past two weeks. If you cut California into two, so you sever Northern California from Southern California, Southern California looks quite bad. It's beginning to look more like those other states. Now, Southern California is on average more conservative than Northern California, and that seems to have something to do with it. Places were reopening earlier there, mask adherence seems to be lower. But California overall is a liberal place. Like I I, it's it's not that's not a super compelling explanation to me.
3: And and to say like more, more, more conservative than Oakland is like a very low bar. (laughs)
2: Sure. Yes. I mean, there are genuinely conservative parts in like inland California, but that's not like LA is going up and LA is not conservative in that way. And so the other thing that is surprising to me about California, and sorry if you can hear a dog barking in the background, um, COVID man. The other thing that is surprising to me about California is that we are a very big state with a lot of money. And I recognize, like, not unlimited money. It's hard to deficit spend, but we have resources. So you will always hear Gavin Newsom or whomever say, like, California, sixth biggest economy in the world, right? If we were a country, we would be. So, okay, like, why didn't we? And I've tried to, like, answer this question, like, why don't we have a Massachusetts level contact tracing system set up? And I don't really get good answers to it. Like, we have a lot of people here who know what they're doing, we have, like, a lot of expertise centered around. The UC system in particular, but not only Stanford is here, right? Like there's like the like big medical groups are here. Like there's a lot of technological expertise here. And yet it just like California's doing badly too. You know, I was looking um, uh, in our world in data, they have these country profiles and the one for Germany reads... Germany is a highly federalized country. The responsibility for public health lies primarily with intermediate and local public health authorities in 16 federal states and approximately 400 counties. They adapt the national guidelines and recommendations to local needs. National authorities facilitate nationwide exchange and negotiate standards and common procedures. I, I read that just to say that other places are handling as well, even when they're federalized. I get that the federal government here has been a disaster. Like, and I, I, So there's no way this would be going well. But I don't really have a good answer for why um, it's going as poorly as it is in states that have known for a long time they can't trust the federal government and have, in theory, been working for a long time on building the structures to be able to manage this well and had bought themselves time at the beginning to do that building.
3: And it, it's frustrating to me. I'm I'm in Maine now, and, and this is a state that is, I think, fairly favorably situated, um, low levels of cases not a big wintertime international travel destination. So, you know, there wasn't initial seeding. Outbreak was completely contained outside of the, the Portland metropolitan area. Uh, Democratic governor, Democratic legislature, um, they have been trying pretty earnestly, I think, to to protect the state. They had a quarantine mandate on people who come in from out of state, which I complied with, you know. To do the right thing. they have been easing that slowly because they you know they don't want to crush the state's economy. Um, they require people to wear masks when they go into stores. Uh, so that's good. Uh, compliance with it has not been perfect, but it's been pretty good. and we don't seem to have a strong like local government backlash in the more conservative parts of the state. They've done some contact tracing in in the rural areas. It's working. But they have allowed indoor dining to reopen. And I just don't see why you would do that. Uh, If you are going to require people to wear masks, which, you know, Janet Mills has done, you acknowledge the importance of having people wear masks. And you can't wear a mask while you're eating lunch. You just can't. And so why would you create that kind of loophole, especially now, like summertime in Maine? Like this is a great time to uh, eat your dinner outside. Um, And this is a state that is uh, quite empty. Uh, It is very easy to create sort of um, ad hoc outside dining opportunities. It's not, you know, Manhattan, uh, where you have fierce competition over space. And, you know, I poke around, I talk to some people in in Maine politics and local government and, you know, they say, well, they don't want to hurt the businesses. They don't want to hurt the economy too much. The federal government isn't helping them out. And it's all true. They have been dealt a bad hand by a federal government that has been irresponsible. But you have to play the hand. You know, on some level, Uh, the EU, one thing that's good about the EU comparison is that the EU has its own like dumbass budget rules. And so the government of Denmark, for example, is laboring under. It's complicated exactly what they are laboring under but because of the way their currency works they can't engage in high levels of deficit spending uh, any more than an American state government can and it it sucks for them you know like it's a it's a bad situation but they are dealing with it and they are dealing with it in a way that has not gotten a lot of people killed and that allows for most things can be reopened safely, if you are prudent, if you control community spread. So you can accomplish what people want, which is to be able to do most of your daily life. But indoor talking without masks on is like, it it just isn't safe. And you can't do it like, just because it's more convenient to allow it. And like, I I feel like I'm losing my mind sitting here and everyone's like, well, it's going well here. You know, they got the problem in Arizona. But it's like, yeah, like while it's going well is the time to like stamp it into the ground, not just wait until things get bad.
2: What what are the problems with even just doing punditry on this is that there's just still a lot we don't understand. Like, there's still a lot of regional variation. There's not a great explanation for why Arizona is going nuts and other places are not looking like Arizona. Like, why doesn't New Mexico look like Arizona is like an interesting question that we don't fully have the capacity to answer. And there's all kind. Of, I mean, some of it is like the bad luck of super spreader events, some of it does have a lot to do with um, both political leadership and adherence to, to public safety measures. There's been talk back and forth about whether or not there are slightly different strains of this going around and that like the places get hit by a slightly more virulent strain or in much worse shape. I want to be really clear that there does not seem to be a consensus on that. And the epidemiologists I talk to do not like tend to favor that as an explanation, but we don't know for sure that it's not true. Like there are things going on here that are mysterious. And yet you would expect that, what's the way to put this? I think in a normal world, like as we saw this curve beginning to go nuts, we would have really doubled down and doubled down, right? We would have said, okay, like we didn't get this right the first time. Like we need to go into a 4 day lockdown. We learned a lot. We know how to use it better this time. Like we're going to do that. Like everybody get on the same page, like nation come together. And what's really striking to me is my read of the politics of this is the incredible Competence and disinterest, and to some degree, the opposition of the Trump administration to handling this well, has become settled fact, and it has created an almost nihilism in the public, and even to some degree in other governments, state governments, where there's like a sense of like, well, you know what, we're going to try a little bit, right? We're going to keep some things closed. Most, you know, a lot of places don't uh, like. There's no indoor dining here, for instance. Like we wear masks. Like we try, but. If we're not going to fix this, then we're going to kind of give up on it. And I think that a lot, a lot of what has been called reopening is better understood as giving up, right? We're not reopening based on White House guidelines or state guidelines or, you know, Harvard guidelines or anything. We're just like giving up a little bit. And giving up creates its own dynamics. You see the curve going up. You see that nobody's got a plan to change it. And so there's an almost like, unless you are personally super vulnerable or you're taking it very seriously, which again, some people really are, there begins to be like a like an exhaustion, right? A collective action problem. Well, if everybody else isn't going to like ruin their life over this and it's just going to take the risk of getting it and passing it on, then I guess I will too. And like, you can just see that. You can feel it when you go out. You can like look at it happening and it's a way in which um, the much more effective responses of places like the EU or like Singapore really help that the government bought credibility, showed it would use that trust well. And then like people feel they're in a war they can win. And when the government comes back and says, we've got to do a little bit more, they don't think like, Well, there's no plan here. We're just like ricocheting recklessly from thing to thing. It's like, okay, like if we do this, maybe we'll get it under control. And a lot of these places in Europe, like they're being able to reopen in a much more real way than we are. So I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm a politics guy, so I'm in some ways inclined to blame this on poor political response. But I, I think there's a much bigger interaction effect than people sometimes give credit for between the political response and the public's willingness to adhere to the behaviors that make a response effective.
3: All right, let's take a pause here. And I want to offer another thought on that theme.
4: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines.
0: Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies.
3: It's interesting to me, you know, you, you were talking about sort of the, the public response and how that interacts with the federal government. But what's most interesting to me is not exactly the the public, but sort of intermediary institutions. So for example, I, I've been reporting on school, you know, reopening and, and what the situation is there. And one of the big issues, I mean, there's fiscal issues, there's logistical issues, there's public health issues, there's educational issues. But one of the big issues is that teachers don't want to do. Now, if you ask them, of course, they say, like, we 're desperate to get back in to see our kids, but it's it has to be safe, which of course is 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 true on on some level uh, but But the fact is is they are very reluctant, and to some extent, the unions that you know represent them are being caught in the middle between a desire to sort of play the political game in a in an effective way and to represent what what their members really think and kind of draw the lines. But at a time when lots and lots of working class service people are working, they are working in restaurants, they are working in hotels, they are working in all kinds of stores and and things like that, you have this kind of strong desire from teachers To really ease up on this and say that like prioritizing their safety needs to be the thing to do. And I find it hard to blame them, because the overall response has been such a catastrophe. You know, you could imagine a different situation in which political leadership had been really on the ball, in which the virus was reasonably well contained, in which there had been quite harsh rules on businesses, but generous support in an ongoing way to the workers. And then we had had to say at a certain point, teachers of America, like you are going to be the soldiers going into the next front line of this war. We had like the heroic doctors and nurses at the peak of the crisis in New York. And now, yes, like we are going to need to ask you to take some risk, but like modulated risk uh, with your lives and health to get children educated, because that's something that we can't afford to wait on. Uh, But you can't pitch that to, to teachers as like, bold, heroic, risk-taking for the greater good, because you've got all this other shit going on. You know, like, there is no transcendent social value in, like, go-kart operations being open. But we're just doing it because Republicans haven't wanted to appropriate the money, state governments are paralyzed by the lack of federal action. And so it all flows downstream in a way that is both like disappointing, but I think very understandable because it's hard to ask sacrifice of anyone when nothing is is working, right? Like I'm just sitting here in my podcast cabin, uh, hiding out and like being, I guess a little inconvenienced by by the virus, but like I have nothing on the line here. So it makes me reluctant to to criticize other people for just sort of doing what they can to to take care of themselves. But it's a you were saying at the beginning, like you don't know how to find the tone. and and neither do I. It's it's just so shocking compared to everything else that has happened in the course of my lifetime in America, which has included some pretty bad fuck ups, but never this kind of just leaving the field.
2: I want to say a couple things on the school's issue because it's really, really important. First, I want to quote something from your piece on this, which I thought was great. You have a study in there where you say that students are, or the authors say, students are likely to return in fall of 2020 with approximately 63 to 68 percent of the learning gains in reading relative to a typical school year and 37 to 50 percent of the learning gains in math. It's like, let's just say this very clearly, keeping schools closed, even with distance learning, Is a huge problem, right? We are like hurting children. We are hurting their futures. Like they will be at a disadvantage, you know, comparatively. So it's something you'd really want to change. But then, like, some very obvious things come into this. One is it to just like underscore a point you were making about the effectiveness of the overall response, shaping the individual risks people are willing to take, asking teachers to go back to work when The cases per million average is 10 new cases a day across the entire country, as opposed to 160, like, looks a lot better, right? That's just like, it's a less risky ask. It was up to society. Like, I have talked to teachers about this, and I have been listening to teachers talk about this, and, 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 like, Teachers really do want to be back with their students. I mean, everybody wants to be back. I desperately want to go back to the office. Yes, like it's terrible. This is horrible. But but they are scared, and many teachers right live in multi generational households. They want to. They have a partner, or they themselves are immunocompromised. I mean, there are all kinds of issues here. One of the things about schools, we have a piece going up. It'll be up by the time this podcast is up. By an epidemiologist um, talking about schools, and and he makes the argument in that piece. He's pro reopening schools that. As he reads the evidence, the attack rate of the virus on children is simply lower. Like kids are less likely to get infected, not just less likely to die, but less likely to get infected and be carriers. Now, we don't know that to the specific enough level to like really make that a huge plank. But like there's some reason to believe that um, classes and particularly if you like did good potting, right, the kids all went in, like you asked families to like quarantine around that um, and You know, and people are going like doing that every day as opposed to like the kids are going in two days a week, and then like desperate parents who have to go back to work are sending the kid to a friend's house to some kind of camp that is still open under the books or even on the books like the other days. That in some ways is actually a much more dangerous situation because like there's a lot more circles being merged there. But like in this specific thing, like it may be the case that kids are not as dangerous as as adults are, but just. It is the overall failure here that has been a problem. And part of the overall failure has been a a failure to have goals, to really decide what it is we are trying to do. Now, there are obviously goals about restraining the virus, crushing the curve, etc. But it's a good goal to have set a couple months back is schools reopen in the fall. And like that is what we know we are going to do. Like, barring total catastrophe. And so, the question is, what other policies do we need to do? What other sacrifices do we need to make to make that likelier? Because, like, it is much more okay. I would love to go sit inside at a bar. Like, I have for some reason just been create like a leather bar where I could get a whiskey and like somebody else could curate the aesthetic experience. Like, I just, I, I, but it's okay if I don't get that. Like, nothing happens to me. It just is a bummer. It's not okay for kids not to be able to go to school for a million different reasons, socialization, learning, et cetera, their parents being able to do their jobs. And so we should have set that as a goal and then decided, okay, like if we are going to do this, for this to be safe enough, maybe other things need to be more locked down. Maybe things we would like to otherwise reopen can't be reopened. And maybe that means we have to do something more like the Paycheck Guarantee Act. Maybe that means we have to keep that UI going for longer, like whatever it is. But we didn't. There's no goals. There's no priorities. There's no seriousness. And there's no fucking accountability. Right. There's no like the administration can be like, we really screwed this up. We're rebooting. Instead, there's Donald Trump tweeting in all caps, schools must reopen in fall, which I'm even more worried about because I worry it'll culture war that issue. It'll create polarization on the issue of schools reopening. Well, like that should be the goal. But the goal isn't like to send the tweet showing that you're on the side of the goal. The goal is to build a policy structure around it that makes it something people can buy into, parents and teachers alike. And we just didn't. And, and this is what's crazy. I wrote a
3: piece back in the spring, you know, before this like reopening was, was front of mind, but it was, it was exactly on this point. It was saying like, we need to take the summer to get the disease under control enough to reopen the schools. And what's maddening to me is that the, the stated reason, right? for reopening things when they did and letting this spread back out of control was the economy. People kept saying it, like reopen the economy was like the the catchphrase, not reopen the educational system, not reopen people's ability to have relationships with their friends and family, but reopen the economy. But there was no objective problem in the economy, right? Like if you looked at household income in April and May. It was fine because people got the $1,200 checks. People got the bonus unemployment insurance. There were eviction moratoriums in place, and it was fine. That exact policy framework was not sustainable for the long term because it created... This has been sometimes misconstrued as complaining that oh, the UI was too generous. We're being too nice to laid off people. That wasn't the problem. The problem is it was creating an asymmetry so that essential workers who were risking their lives were actually getting paid less than people who were on furlough, which just didn't make sense conceptually. But there was no fiscal crisis at the federal government, right? Interest rates were not soaring. The bond vigilantes weren't saying, you guys got to cut it off. Everything was fine. Congress. Just they needed to renew their programs. They needed to reshape them a little bit. They needed to like the the PPP program, for whatever reason, the implementation details on that were not great. So they needed to change what they were doing to support small businesses. Adam Ozimek and uh, uh, I think his name is Adam Lettieri, Uh they had a good proposal for it that, that I've written up a few times. They probably needed to adjust the UI and give some bonus pay uh, to some other people. They they needed to give money to state and local governments, but there was nothing stopping them. There was no like external force acting here other than Honestly, the perversity of Mitch McConnell, because in this case, like, I don't I don't believe that Donald Trump would have stopped Republican congressional leaders from making a deal with Nancy Pelosi. And I don't know what they were doing there. Other things like Trump's tweets and and different kinds of drama, like, seem more irresponsible, sometimes like inherently. Can, can can
2: Can I jump in on this point? Yeah, do it. Because I've been doing some reporting on this, actually, and talking to other people who are doing reporting on this, because like this to me is like the big question, like just like <laughs> it like if you're a Republican, look at the fucking polls. This is not going right. Well, right, right? Like this is not like political self-interest. So like why isn't and what I have heard and what I have found is that the way to think about like both like the Trump administration and its relationship to like the congressional Republicans there's kind of a war going on there is a part of the Trump administration that is like full of movement conservatives right the part of the Trump administration where like they didn't have people so they hired everybody from heritage right mark meadows is the chief of staff who was like a tea party member of congress and like those guys like they don't want like ideologically to do economic support they don't want stimulus they don't want like they like they, they they are not as debt worried as um, people like they sometimes pretend to be, but they're enough debt concerned that like they don't like some of the, they they, they certainly find it easy. You've all love made this point to me that like they default when they don't know what to do to worrying about the debt. And so when the Democrats in the house, like here's a big proposal, it's three and a half trillion. They're like, well, the debt, right? Because like they're not getting leadership in a different direction. So that's one part of it, right? There's like this conservative movement that it doesn't like government programs. It doesn't like Nancy Pelosi. And so, like, maybe it would have one version of a response, but it doesn't like the one the Democrats are coming up with. So, that's one part. Then there's like the other part of the Trump administration. And like, Trump is part of this part, which doesn't like any, like, kind of doesn't like governing, <laughs> doesn't want this to be their problem. I think this is a really underplayed thing how much the, to the extent the administration has had a policy. This is somebody else's problem has been an important policy strain, right? They have sometimes articulated a view of federalism here. Donald Trump has consistently articulated the idea that governors or states or cities would need federal help as a failure on their part, and they should be grateful if the federal government comes in and bails them out. He doesn't like testing because it makes the numbers go up. So there's a big part of the Trump administration that, like, it sounds crazy to say it because so much of this era sounds crazy to say aloud. But like, what they want to do is ignore this and sometimes like what they want to do is like go in the other direction trump just like oscillates dramatically day to day you know or maybe they want to like attack china over it right all kinds of things come out of that side but they kind of want to fight a culture war over this but not govern against it and what is important is that the thing in the venn diagram between those two camps is nothing right if you do nothing the movement conservatives like aren't bothered by it and like trump instinctually like doesn't worry about it. Like the crazy thing is that Mitch McConnell or, or other Republicans like haven't had the energy or or anything to like come up with a response demanding to do something. But they don't want to also be at cross purposes with Trump. They like want to oppose Nancy Pelosi. And so it just seems that like what has happened here is like the center of the veil diagram is stalemate, nothing, paralysis. And as wild as that sounds, like that is just like actually kind of a policy compromise between doing things they don't want to do. And um, every side of this debate has stuff they don't want the other side to do. So doing nothing ends up working for them. And then they can kind of and then like Trump's view is to attack like the Democrats for closing down the country. And like that's the that's where the policy has ended up.
0: It's so
2: odd to me, though, that you see this level of passivity
3: through the conservative movement though which doesn't this is not from talking to people this is from looking at outputs uh cuz people are different sort of on the on the back channel but like if you see what's on fox or you see what's being published uh by by conservative uh you know think tanks and, and outlets they don't seem to feel that they are on the brink of a catastrophe And then when I talk to people, I don't know, I think the people who I talk to are pretty reasonable people and they can, they can see, I I mean, this this is not like a genius insight. It's like they see the same fucking polls as anybody else. Right. And it's like, whatever your conservative public policy objectives are, whatever your vision for America is, um, just like driving the country off the cliff so that Democrats manage to uh, win unlikely Senate races. Like that doesn't help. And it's, I both like, you know, I I don't mind if Republicans lose a Senate race in Kansas on some level. Um, But I really do mind if the means by which Republicans lose a Senate race in Kansas is hundreds of thousands of people die. Like I, like everybody else who lives here, count on the incentive compatible aspects of democracy to hold us through. And there's something more weird about the, the breakdown there. Like, You're not supposed to want to lose.
2: Yeah, it's very, very strange, and it's very disturbing. I don't know how much I believe this argument. It has been made to me, and I have played around with it. It sometimes seems to me. There's a version of this that just says... The Republicans in Congress have completely like lost their capacity as a governing force, and I, I would we'll put it in show notes. I like wrote a piece reporting this out with Republicans talking about it a couple weeks ago, because like part of the question is not just why didn't Donald Trump do more, but why isn't Mitch McConnell done more? And like the kind of things I heard from Republicans were searing, right? Republicans are outside of government, but there's an argument out there that to the to, to the point you're making, Matt, about there not being that much alarm that. A lot of Republicans and a lot of conservatives, as much as they're like cowed by this Trumpist era, are deeply ambivalent about it. And there is some part of them that in a weird way doesn't fear losing the way they normally would. Like if they could like discredit Trump, go back into the minority where in some ways are more comfortable. Um, because they like, like throwing bombs, not governing, and then, like, rebuild in a way they felt better about that, like it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. And I don't exactly mean that that is like their most conscious view of this, but that they don't feel the reason they are not acting so alarmed is that on some emotional level, they're not. They're resigned. They are. Embarrassed, they are other things that are creating a weird cognitive dissonance about how they're acting in the election. It's not true for all of them, right? I don't think Mitch McConnell wants to be in the minority. So this doesn't really explain his behavior, which is one reason it's not for me a central explanation. But I, I do. I think there is something to it because I do think a lot of Republicans. The thing that Don, that Joe Biden has done really well is maintain a sense among like a lot of people that you don't love him, but the people you hate don't love him either. And that like lowers negative partisanship in a kind of genius way, actually. It's just like a lot of Republicans are just not that alarmed about Joe Biden. Whether they should be is a different question, but they're just not. And so I think something that you're picking up here is it my view is that the Republican party many in it, not all, are in an emotionally weird place in the election. There's like the Trumpist faction that does not believe any numbers or polls and so does not like react with alarm because like they're just completely detached from reality at this point. And then there's a faction that does believe it but just is having trouble bringing themselves to care the way they normally would because like on some level they sort of think they deserve the punishment.
3: All right, let's take a second break and and I I want to I want to further consider this.
4: Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro rower, finding time for a 20-minute full body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state of the art low impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels and their classes are taught by Olympians and world class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought.
3: The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun.
4: This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your hydro. That's H Y D R O W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS.
1: Hi, we're visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing.
3: Remember, uh, it was a while ago. Maybe it was over a year ago. I think it was you and me and and Jane did, did a podcast, and we were talking about uh, like like Ben Shapiro and uh, some of these like younger like California based conservatives, and I was getting like so frustrated with you guys uh, because like I kept saying like but like this isn't what politics is about. This set of like diffuse concerns that they have. They're like, they're like mad at like woke movies or something. And I've been marinating on that discussion ever since because it, it really does feel to me like so many conservatives believe in their hearts this like politics is downstream of culture type thing, such that they actually don't. Focus on the concrete consequences of losing concrete political power, right? Like you were saying that like Biden has sort of disarmed their negative partisanship dynamics. And I feel like that's it's sort of transparently because he's this like old white fuddy duddy. Yeah. Right. And like, it's not a symbolic affront to them to have him in the White House the way Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren uh, would have been, or Barack Obama was. And it's so weird, though, because like the government does things like control the public health response to a pandemic and set the tax rates. And it's like Republicans' failure to handle the pandemic is going to let Democrats set. Tax rates, and yet you have a political movement in the United States that, on some I think like fairly profound level has decided that that's not actually what they're most interested in like that like they're political pros or like pundits or even elected officials, but like they don't care that much about the government and its policy actions
2: yes, I think that I think that's undoubtedly true. The one thing I'd add to it though is. When you talk to political scientists about this stuff, they'll talk often in elections about this idea of salience or activation. We all have a lot of opinions, identities, views, concerns. And a question in elections is which ones are activated. So, like the Donald Trump Hillary Clinton collision activated a lot of, or created very high salience around immigration views. And I think what a lot of Republicans or conservatives were expecting to do in this election, like five months ago, was it was going to be like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren against Donald Trump and they would they would do actually a thing they they're more comfortable with that's more like traditional republican campaigning which is like activate views on socialism right activate views on economic policy thing is the coronavirus has settled on the nation as a completely pervasive force and it is basically blocking the activation of any other concern. Not literally because obviously we just saw the Black Lives Matter movement but but I mean sort of in the election right in terms of policy making in terms of the things that are like driving the federal government. You could just see it right Donald Trump like wants to activate people on statues and like nobody cares really. Like they just like it's not working. And I, so I think one thing that's happening here is like the normal way this would be responded to and maybe still will be right. It's only it's July. We've got some months until the uh, election itself but is what they would need to do is find the cleavage between them and Biden or them and the Democrats or something that activated people. Because there are a lot of things these groups care about. But the problem is that as long as coronavirus is what is salient, the question becomes, the activating question becomes, Republicans and Democrats alike, how do you, do you want this guy, this regime continuing to lead our response to coronavirus? And I think the answer in the heart of hearts for a huge number of Republicans, for just any sentient person, is no. Um, ben Shapiro is not here on this podcast. Uh, I don't know what he would say to this. Um, <laughs> sure. But I think that like, I, I don't like I think even most of these people, they they might hate a Biden administration for a 100 other reasons. But on coronavirus itself, the thing that is most salient, they would be relieved to have Joe Biden and Ron Klain Running that response Mm -hmm. correctly, so because like this is going terribly, Um, but I think that's really matter, right? The thing that is salient, Joe Biden is simultaneously competent and inoffensive. On I think it's actually a notable thing, right? Like Joe Biden is always taking the attitude on coronavirus that was not the attitude Bernie Sanders took, which is like it's not it's not the way he's gonna like bring socialism to America. It's a like a like a complicated governmental emergency that requires a lot of interagency coordination. And like there's a many leftists who don't like that, that, that about Joe Biden. And I also think that might be changing about Joe Biden in practice if he could get it under control and then do legislating. But nevertheless, like his actual profile in coronavirus is just like we should get good people in charge and listen to them. And given that that's the most salient thing, I think a lot of people, even people who don't like Joe Biden for other reasons, would honestly just prefer that in a pretty deep way. I think, though, that, you know, for all those kind of reasons you were outlining, like, I think that this is
3: going to lead to some reevaluation of Mitch McConnell as a as a character and an operator in America because he had really obtained and sort of relished with his like grim reaper memes and stuff this persona as like the true like master strategist of the conservative movement but you know what you're saying and I, and I think it's right is that ultimately you know the indulgence of Trump that he really orchestrated from a Senate caucus that at least on paper was quite skeptical of Trump as a personality has really blown up, you know, that there's been no equivalent. There's sort of a famous uh, story from the the 80s, from Reagan's second term, when the Iran-Contra scandal is blowing up and, you know, stuff is going on and Republican congressional leaders sort of march to the White House and they demand a house cleaning at the White House staff and the installation of a new chief of staff and, you know, various other things. Um, And it worked, you know, like pressure was brought to bear on a president who they agreed with ideologically, but who by that time was kind of disengaged from day to day management of the government and was not doing a good job. And they they righted the ship. And there has never been an effort to right the ship in Trump governance. And there was, you know, an opportunity around impeachment, right, in which you could have had Mike Pence be president uh, without committing any ideological transgressions against conservatism. Uh, But Republicans, like, really, really chose not to go that way and have chosen that numerous times, up until, you know, we're we're recording on Thursday, and the Supreme Court of the United States just handed down one of these rulings that says basically, you know, like Trump's foot dragging on his tax returns, he's going to be able to get away with. And he can keep litigating this out for several more years until after the election. And the, the movement has just Without ever saying, like, nobody looks you in the eye and says with a straight face, like, we think Donald Trump is um, really good at the managerial and administrative aspects of his job. Uh, They've at the same time, like, they really have invested themselves in keeping him in power and letting him uh, behave like this. And it's so... I. We both, I mean, fucking everybody wrote an article at some point in 2017 of like, oh, man, someday a crisis is going to come and you're really going to wish the president knew what he was doing. And like, fucking A, man, like it. this, this is like the most predicted thing in the world has happened.
2: Yeah. And it's gruesome. Um, Unfortunately, I think we need to end it there.
3: (laughs) Yes. Okay. Um, Yeah. We should wrap it up. Uh, We we got a heart out here, Um, but thanks, Ezra. Thanks, as always, to our producer Jeffrey Geld, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday.